Hi, I'm Jen. And I'm Jen. Welcome to Marginalia Pod. Where we treat reading as a sacred practice and find meaning and connections through our favourite books. I would like to begin by acknowledging the Gurungai and Daruk people, traditional custodians of the land where I am recording today, and pay my respects to their elders past and present. I'd also like to acknowledge Tangata Finua of Tafanganuiatara, where I am recording today. What a week! What a week! It's been a couple of big weeks and I'm sick of it, quite frankly. I yeah. would like to go back to nice, easy weeks. Yes, please. And um, I don't know if you heard, but Old Mate went looking for a barbecue this weekend, so we're back in lockdown. I'm kind of obsessed with this man and his barbecues. <laughs> I need answers. Did he find the barbecue he wanted? I assume so, because he went to the meat store afterwards. <laughs> and I want to know what barbecue it is. I need, a, I need a review. I need some sort of vlog yeah. from him about the barbecue. We gotta hear how it's going. Yeah, was it worth it? Yeah. Good thing it happened this week, though. Yeah, because otherwise um, you wouldn't have gone to see Hamilton. Oh, that's true. But we were masked the whole time. That was the other thing I meant to tell you. When you go see Hamilton, you have to bring your mask. Okay. Well, I always have one in my bag. Yeah. Um, they do have them there, but it helps if you have your own. They're a little more comfortable when you have your own. But yeah, old mate and his barbecue, so back to no more gatherings and i mean it's just for 48 hours but i was like no not the travel bubble anything but the travel bubble oh i know as soon as the travel bubble was announced now australia's like just kicked it off two cases come on guys both perth and sydney the two places i'm going i don't need this sort it out you don't need a barbecue but i need to see jen so <laughs> get it together guys stupid COVID. I was talking to um, my best friend back home and she was saying that her kids have been out of school for over a year. Like they haven't done in-person school all of this school year. It's unfathomable really to think about what other countries are going through. It's just like mind boggling. Um, on a slightly lighter note, happy uh, potiversary. Oh, yay. Six months. I know. And I love that we get to do this every week. It really is like the highlight of my week. It is delightful. You are delightful. You're delightful. <laughs> it's a competition speaking of delightful do you want to tell me about a moment of wonder you've had this week um yeah so I kind of have two so the first one is that I got to see Hamilton and it is as amazing as everybody has said it is so good Ooh. and um, because I hadn't watched it on Disney plus a lot of the staging was like a total surprise oh cool but then we came home and watched it on Disney plus and we were like oh my gosh it's exactly the same so there's a lot of like really amazing technically precise things that like the geek in me really loved mm. like all of the timings and the choreography and like who's doing what and I just I just want to like watch it every week for like a year so I can see all of these things to kind of honor all the work that went into making mm. it the production that it is yeah so that was great and I mean like everyone knows about Hamilton so I'm not gonna wax on and on about it but it really was good and well worth it um and then the second one was on tuesday afternoons i have to take my son to speech therapy and then i have to drop him back at school to go to his tap dancing class which is at school but after school and then i'm usually like two to five minutes late picking my daughter up whose school is like two blocks away um and last week she was super upset because i was a few minutes late and her teacher was like it's gonna be okay she's gonna be here and like she had a little tear on her face and i was like oh my gosh okay well she's nine years old she's gonna be 10 in july so maybe it would be okay if she used the crosswalk with the lollipop man right in front of the school and walked to the cafe that's like catty corner across the street from the school by herself to wait for me because we go there anyway on Tuesdays and I was like would you like to try that and her teacher was like yep she's old enough year four that's fine just send me an email so 
We agonized. Well, I agonized about it. Simon was just like, yeah, of course, it's fine. <laughs> and on Tuesday, I went in and I, like made friends with the waitress. And I'm like, hi, your name's Lizzie. My name's Jen. My daughter will be coming here. This is what she looks like. She's like, oh, yeah, everybody knows and loves that kid. I'm like, OK, good. So I actually was early this week. And here my daughter was meant to do this big, scary walk by herself. So I like had to hide in the bushes a little bit down the street <laughs> and watch her. And she was so confident and so brave. And after that, she's like, I mean, because she was really worried about it right up until the actual time. But then afterwards, she's like, Mom, I could do this every day. Do you think I could walk to this cafe every day? I was like, um, let's just stick with Tuesdays for now. My poor heart can't take it. Aww. But yeah, I was so proud of her. And she was so great. And she was very confident. She asked for a table. She remembered the waitress's name. She was really lovely. I was so proud And you're hiding in the bushes the whole time just (laughs) watching. Because, like, I knew it would have been fine. But, like, I was like, oh, I can't get there early and, like, not make it a thing like it's been built up now so if it doesn't happen it'll be even worse next week Mm. so I was like I have that anxiety I know what that's like so I thought okay I'll just hang back and see how she goes so I was the wise turtle from Finding Nemo letting the kid figure out how to get back into the East Australian current (laughs) oh what a moment I can't believe she's so grown up it's just crazy I know she was such a baby last time you were here real real proper babies now they're all grown up But anyway, yeah, so that was me. How about you? Did you have a moment of wonder this week? Yeah, so I've been doing this design course through work. It's part of my professional development, learning how to be a graphic designer, mainly only because people already think I'm a graphic designer and I'm like, you might as well make sure that I am qualified if you're going to make me do these (laughs) things. So I've kind of been pushing myself in a creative way that I don't really give myself a lot of grace in. So, you know, drawing an artistic expression is something that I am an incredibly harsh judge of myself of. So I have always wanted to draw and create in this way, but I've never... Like, I have really great ideas, but I've never been accurately able to convey what's in my head onto paper. I always draw the thing and be like, oh, this is terrible. Let's throw it in the bin and never talk about this ever again. Like, I've really struggled with that. But I've really been allowing, like, I've really been allowing myself to play in that space this week. And it's just kind of been really soothing to park up on the couch and just sketch things up and not get hung up on what it looks like or it having to be perfect because they're just like sketches and they're just ideas and it feels like a really big thing for me to have gotten to this point that I can do that so yeah that's amazing I'm really proud of you thanks I'm proud (laughs) it's really hard to let go of the inner perfectionist to just be like you know what I'm just gonna do it and I'm gonna be happy with it yeah it's also just being like well who are you you're not gonna be perfect at it and unless you practice at it you're never gonna be able to do it properly so exactly just do things that feel fun and worry about it later (laughs) I've sent you I'm sure I've sent I send this to everybody I've sent you the Ira Glass quote or you've read it right about when you're in that phase between like you know when something's good but you can't make it good yet Mm. Like that is always the hardest hump for everybody. Um, I'll have to find it. I'll maybe I'll link it in the show notes. But basically, the gist of it is like you start to get good at something, but you get good at understanding what's good before you're actually able to create it in that way. So you have this whole chunk of time where you're like rubbish at something, but you know it's not good yet. Hmm. Yeah. It's like the opposite of the Dunning-Kruger effect. It's a big problem for me because I am such a perfectionist, but I'm also, I'm annoyingly naturally skilled at a lot of stuff, and which sounds really arrogant. There are just a lot of good things that I'm good at first go. And so when I'm not good at things, I really struggle. Like if I do mm. something and I'm like, what? I'm not amazing at this in the first possible instance. Like this is terrible. I can never do this again. Like so stuff like playing instruments or drawing or things like that. I'm like, ugh terrible I could never do this and it's like no you just actually need to try like stop being such an idiot but no this is making me laugh so much um literally (laughs) I am married to this person (laughs) 
it's just confirming all of my beliefs that even though my husband has tested Hufflepuff, he's actually got quite a lot of Slytherin qualities. Because that, like, being naturally good at a lot of things is definitely totally a Slytherin trait, I think. And probably being like, and everything else is garbage. If I'm not good yep. at it, therefore it's terrible. Yep. Like, okay. Yes. Calm down. Exactly. I have really like struggled to come to terms with this because I am smart, but not able to put things together quickly. I'm smart in different ways. But like, I really love that I'm good at failing and messing up because I'm so good at it now that it doesn't phase me if I get something wrong. Well, it's so important to like fail. That's how you learn. Yeah. And I think maybe that's a big thing for me is that I didn't learn resilience as a child because I didn't fail enough. So that's something that I struggled with as an adult. It's okay to quit and it's okay to fail and it's okay to do something and not be good at it. Absolutely. And you can still do a thing even if you're not good at it. The object of it is not to be good at it. The object is to enjoy it. Yeah, I was um, talking about why I started running with my therapist this weekend. Like she was like, so, you know, what? what's your goal? And I was like, to run. <laughs> like I'm running to run. That's the whole, that's the whole thing. Like that's all, I can't have it be anything else because if it's anything beyond that, then it starts to become bigger than me. Yeah. And I don't want it to take over. So I'm running so yeah. that I could run. And if I keep going with it, I can keep running. Yeah, amazing. And that's, the, the goal's enough. Hmm. Sometimes it's enough just to have a really dumb goal that doesn't matter. And sometimes it's fun to just sit on the couch and draw of an evening. Yeah. Turns out that is really fun. Plus your Luna <laughs> looked amazing. I love her. She's great. Oh, thank you. The thing is I can't draw without references. So I always feel like I'm cheating, but I'm like, mm, I've got to start somewhere. I will send you my sister's webcomic, which is amazing. And she started out years and years and years ago. So I have been able to see her art develop and grow over time. And I'm pretty Aww. sure she uses references to draw. That gives me hope. Um, So this week we're reading chapters 21 through 27 um, through the theme of corruption. Now I was wondering, do you have a story about corruption? So corruption is a difficult one because it doesn't really have, it's just straight up bad, right? Like there's not a lot of nuance in corruption, but I was determined, determined to find some nuance. So I was thinking about this theme and I was reminded of when I was in high school and a friend said to me, oh, you've corrupted me. And how often that has been the case in my life that I've heard that. It's not that I'm a bad influence. At least I don't think I'm a bad influence. But I am a disruptor. And I encourage people to push boundaries. And I definitely encourage people to challenge systems. Because I don't like hierarchies or systems or adhering to things just for the sake of it. I think rules have their place and it's important to know the rules, but I think it's just as important to push the rules and push the boundaries where appropriate, of course. So I've often found that people will come into my life at certain times in their lives, maybe when they have worries or anxieties or things that hold them back. And in one way or another, I kind of lead them down this different path. I've thought about this a lot, actually. I've worked through it in therapy because a lot of those times those friendships end up changing or drifting apart at the end of them. And I think what is happening is that I hold space for people to work through those things and work through their anxieties. And I don't reflect any sense of having to conform to any societal norms or rules or whatever. I just give them space. And so without those restraints, people have breathing room to work through what they need to work through. And when they've done and they've grown, they sort of go on to the next thing. And then often I'm just like, oh, okay, cool. Bye. See ya. So yeah, when I hear the phrase, you've corrupted me, it's usually in reference to not agreeing with a norm or not feeling like they have to conform to it in any kind of way. 
Yeah, so while the theme of corruption is predominantly almost completely negative, I think there's room there to read it as a challenge to the status quo. Like, if the thing you're corrupting is the thing that's holding you back, then that's not necessarily a bad thing. Yeah, yeah. I love that. Well, and, like, corruption itself is, like, there's a lot of different nuance to the actual definition. So there's definitely, like, political corruption, which is, like, bribery mm-hmm. and, like, doing the wrong thing, bad ethics. There's, like, decay to putrefaction, um, death to dissolution. Um, and then there's this one, which is my favorite which is alteration of the original Hmm. it can be like to make it worse um but like sometimes i mean we both grew up in the era of downloading music and burning it to cds like that Mm -hmm. you made a mixtape or a mix cd for people then you start burning the cd and then halfway through it would stop because a file was corrupted or something and so you just would feel this immense rage or even worse it'll be finished and you got to put it in and it just wouldn't play it'll be like corrupted (sighs) disc exactly yeah so like whenever i hear the word corruption it's usually connected to like politics or files Mm. in the similar sense to you i would like introduce someone to a band or something and say oh you've corrupted me i like this band now or yeah oh you've corrupted me and now i'll watch rom-coms they're better than action movies you're welcome um so i'm usually it's usually i get people into things that they want to be dismissive of (laughs) yeah it's almost like we give people permission to like the things they want to like but they won't allow themselves without a push it's like There's some sort of stigma or something that holds people back. And then by being like, yeah, I love this thing. You should love it too. They're like, oh, okay, cool. I have permission. And then it's corruption because, I don't know, maybe you're no longer cool because you've fallen down this rabbit hole with me. Well, I would rather be cool and in the rabbit hole with people who absolutely enthusiastically like stuff Mm. without reservation. Because that is where it's at. I agree. It's much nicer down here. Oh, that is a beautiful story. I love that. Oh, thank you. Do you want to tell us... What happens in these chapters we read this week? So, uh, the Citadel is actually a giant angel. Ding, ding. Laszlo was right. Um, but it's made of an improbable metal. Uh, Laszlo and Sarai are each lost in their own thoughts while she watches his party descend into the city. Errol Fane and Azarine have a very painful history. Uh, the Godspawn discuss their possible future in light of the return of the Godslayer. Errol Fane, who is Sarai's father, she goes to his house to pay him a visit, but instead finds a different man in his old room who dreams beautifully. So many things happen in these chapters. There's so many feelings. It was just a lot. It was very intense. I felt for a lot of characters. It was a lot. <laughs> yeah, so we're getting like to the heart of a lot of the trauma of everybody involved in the carnage like the carnage seemed to be almost an extra character this time around Mm. it it just reminded me a lot of how it in families you do things for the people that you love that you might not do or like you make allowances all of the children all of the gods one all of the mesartham in the citadel love minya and like she is their leader and so they were trying to hold on to this really terrible corrupted feeling for her because she was so corrupted by the trauma of the carnage and i don't mean corrupted as in bad i just mean like something fundamental has altered in her yeah and they feel like they ha- they owe it to her right she saved their lives yeah. she looked after them therefore they owe her this this fealty really which is holding on to this pain and this trauma and not leaving her with it on her own i just had a lot of feelings about minia this time around i felt very sad that she was so angry after so many years i can't even be mad after like an hour not vengeance vengeance isn't in your soul no i'm not vengeful i'm at the most i'm petty um so is laszlo (laughs) there was a moment that i was like okay here so on page 185 laszlo was thinking about his role in you know how he's going to solve this problem because he is awed and humbled and he's got this whole thing about he would help in any way that he could and he remembers what master harokin had said to him you know some men are born for great things others help great men do things 
He'd also said there was no shame in it. And Laszlo agreed. So I'm like, oh, look, there's no le- there's no ego with Laszlo. He's just going to get on and help the best he can. And then not two sentences later, he's like, still, is it too much to hope that the man born for great things should not turn out to be Thion Nero? Anyone but him, thought Laszlo, <laughs> laughing a little at his own pettiness. Mate, you were just like, yes, I will help. And I'm like, but not him. I love it because later in the book, he really does help Thion with something super essential. Like he, this is the thing, like he knows he's being petty and he's laughing at himself about it. (laughs) He's okay with these feelings because he's aware of them and he's kind of like, oh, I'm having, like he's like a perfect example of like goals. That is my excuse for everything at work. Every time I misbehave and I say something that I know I shouldn't, I'd be like, but guys, at least I'm self-aware. Am I right? And then I just walk (laughs) off. So then I'm like, I can't get in trouble because I know I've done something I shouldn't have done. It's like you're yelling smoke bomb and then walking away. (laughs) Basically. That's what he's doing. He's like, I'm self-aware, guys. It's okay. I really loved that line. It, it always makes me laugh because I don't think it's a corruption, but I think he's definitely hoping that the story will be told differently. And I wonder if that alteration counts as a corruption. I wanted to ask you about the significance of these dictionary words that break the, the text into chapters, like mm. sections rather. Oh yeah, the parts. Yeah, the text is divided into parts and then on every part there's like a little title page and there is a little word in it which I assume is an unseen and a little description. So in the middle of the section that we read, it's on page 181, we've got part three and it's got a word muhal, um, which is a noun. And then they've got a little description of where it came from and it says a transformative fog of myth that turns one either into a god or a monster. And that really struck me because of the idea of corruption. So if you turn into a monster, that would be a corruption. If you turn into a god, there would be a de- you become a deity, right? A deification. Mm. So what's the difference between those things? Because if we think about earlier in the text, Errol Fain says, you know, what is a god? And whatever the Misarthim were, they weren't holy. I just love that kind of juxtaposition between those two things. We grew up in the Christian tradition, right? So, of course, for us, that's just unthinkable. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm just thinking of all the folklore I love. All of Britain really has an enormous, and Ireland, to have a great sense of folklore. And their gods are tiny fairies who are often good and bad. Like, there's no clear, mm. like, the morals are completely different. They're shifted, right? There's just no, like, they don't translate. So you follow the rules that you yeah. understand to be true in order to appease them. It doesn't always work, but that's life. And that's actually quite a healthy way of looking at things, I guess, versus what we grew up with, which is like we have this benevolent, all-seeing, all-powerful, all-good, but does some really shady things if we start looking at the the text, (laughs) really. Yeah, it does us a kind of a disservice to think of gods in the same way. Because my immediate, when someone says God, I'm thinking of like capital G God. So I, I often think that this is a really wonderful way of kind of taking me out of my own sort of internalized belief systems and like turning that on my head and saying like well yeah what is a god and I'm glad you're all fine asked because like were they gods or were they just I don't know aliens well, yeah yeah and I mean wh- where do you draw the line what is the distinction they could have been gods they might just not be the kind gods that you wanted and I think about you know mm. you know what I love Greek mythology and man if there were ever a pity bunch of gods running around that lot good lord carrying on like that um, and oh, another thing about the gods, right? So the Misathim really corrupted the mm-hmm. religion of the people of wheat because they worshipped these seraphim and they came in and they're like, mm, we're going to take that and we're going to subvert all your expectations. Yeah. And what is that if not corruption? Yeah, it's like a Trojan horse, isn't it? Mm. Like they came in in this giant seraphim and just started basically plundering. How did they know? That's the thing. That's what I, I feel like book two has some answers, but I just honestly can't remember it. 
I'm going to have to read book two, like, in a hurry after we finish this. Um, it's in the text. It's in the text. The word corruption is actually in the text. Yep. I'm really excited about it. Although I want to talk about Errol Fane a fair bit because he's mm-hmm. an idiot. I mean, I love him. He's a very complex being, but he's an idiot. So he uses the word when he's trying to describe himself and listing the reasons he and Azarine can't reconcile. They're married, but they haven't been married since he was stolen away by the Mazartham. He thinks maybe it's Isigal or his complex feelings for Isigal, which haven't faded, or maybe the fact that he murdered all the babies. And on page 189, he says, nothing good or pure could survive in him. All was corruption and gore suffocating in his self-loathing. How weak he was, how pitiful. He might have killed the goddess in the end, but he wasn't free of her, and he never would be. But then on page 211, Sarai, who visits him and tried to torment him to madness for several years, um, she says, there was no darkness to send him to rival what he'd endured already. He had lived three years with Isigal the Terrible. He had survived too much to be driven mad by dreams. So she really sees him as this, like, super strong figure. Mm. Like, here's somebody who's surviving the most terrible thing. And she actually says that the, the worst thing he has that he experiences is shame. Mm-hmm. It's not yeah. fear. I underlined that too. You can be afraid of things, but it's shame that, like, that's what's driving him. Yeah, because it says it was shame that tore him apart. It was despair. It's just so intense. Yeah, and I wonder if so much of his shame is because on page 188, he's talking about, like, he thinks that Azarine wants something from him and he says the raw bewildered morning he did that to her over and over if only she would give up on him he could stop destroying her he could never be what she hoped for what he had once been before he was a hero before he was even a man how do you know Errol Fane have you had a conversation with her have you said like this is who I am now and has she gone oh no sorry no he's just projecting right he's projecting all his own self-loathing his own insecurities onto her because he can't stand the side of himself so therefore he's like I'm no good for her and I will turn makes away makes me so mad yeah especially because Azarine is just waiting for him to like get it it's a corruption of their their entire relationship yeah. right their entire romance and he kind of blames Isagol for that but actually he is the source of the corruption yeah. he's the one doing it yeah he's making the choice now you're right mm. oh wow I mean, I, like, I understood why he was making the choice. I disagree very much with it. I just don't think that he's giving either of them enough credit for the capacity to move forward and heal. No, he's choosing to stay in the trauma is what's happening here. Like, he's not dealing with it. He kind of just sits in it, right? So he won't stay and weep because of the nightmares. And, well, I don't even think if it is the nightmares. It's just the, the shadow of what he did hanging over him. Yeah. He, it's too much for him to be there. So he won't stay there. So he is not engaging with the trauma, but he's also not moving on. Listen, I've got a great counselor for him if he wants to give me a call i will give him her name <laughs> yeah errol fane if you're ever in uh, wellington please contact jen you can reach us at hello at marginaliapod.com <laughs> i'll hook you up um i think there's definitely a lot going on with errol fane and specifically for this this theme but just on that page where soraya is like having this thing i just thought it was so telling that she on page 211 she there's this whole bit where it says the function of hate as sarai saw it was to stamp out compassion to close a door in one's own self and forget it was ever there and she goes on how she lost the ability to do that because she spent so much time with Errol Fane because she saw the way he tormented herself and then it's like it was then her nightmares turned against her and it's the corruption of her purpose yeah i actually wrote that that was like a corruption and then a corruption of a corruption because here she was an innocent child like basically shepherded by somebody whose entire being is focused on vengeance. So she's raised by Minya. She becomes Minya's willing weapon. Um, And then she's infected with this compassion, which has then corrupted her. And then her nightmares turn against her. And she's then further, like, she's corrupted in a different way. She's called the muse of nightmares, but, like, can she only do horrible things in dreams or can she also do good things like what is it that she really is able to do like can she just not make things nice 
or can she only make things bad? I don't really understand the parameters. Well, she, I mean, she did that before when she made the tree bloom, right? So she is capable. She's just the muse of dreams, but she, well, she's told that it's for nightmares, right? Because nightmares, I think, is a corruption of dreams. Mm. Yeah. That's really interesting. She and Errol Fane are very similar in their self-loathing. Mm-hmm. I just want to sit them down and be like, guys, 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 you don't need to be like this. Like, yeah, Errol Fane, you did a terrible thing. We all get your reasons. We're going to have to make peace with it and move on. And Sarai, like, you're not unlovable. You're not. You're amazing. Yeah. Because she definitely sees herself as a corrupted thing. Like, there's that bit where she looks in the mirror on page 197 and she says, she saw only what humans would see, not a girl or a woman or someone in between. They wouldn't see her loneliness or fear or courage, let alone her humanity. They would only see obscenity, calamity, God's born. It's just... That's how she views herself, like yet again, projecting. And then we see Laszlo, right? He doesn't see her like that. He sees her as something magical. Even when she was in that bit of his dream, which was so lovely, and she's saying he looks down at her immodest blue skin and blushes, and she he's she's like, Oh, he sees me for but I'm like, yeah, you're in a nighty. Honey, he's so innocent himself. He's had one friend, and his one friend that's a girl is gay. So like he doesn't have the experience. He's never seen this much yeah, skin. He's just like, oh my god. Gosh, a girl, a girl. It's not the blue that's the problem. But her internal narrative is like, oh, the blue is the thing that he's reacting to. Mm. No, it's the nighty. Um, I, I kept feeling like all of these truths that we were given in the book were corrupted or even proven wrong right away. Um, mm. So I didn't write them all down, but um, there was a whole thing about Mazarthium, the metal. It's perfectly adamant, mm. impenetrable, unassailable, which means it's incorruptible. But if you're Scathis, it's mutable. So... Mm. It's not actually perfectly adamant, right? Like, you just have to have the right tool for the job. So we keep getting these things like, oh, um, I'm never seen in dreams. No one ever sees me in dreams. Oh, my gosh, someone saw me in a dream. Mm, there there yeah. are all these corruptions of these little truths that we were given that were then pretty much straight away kind of. Yeah. And actually, even in Sarai's perception, like she talks about how, you know, she saw Thion and she was like so taken with him because he's so handsome, but his dreams were really not. And then she saw Laszlo and she was like, yeah, mm. yeah, yeah, you know, whatever. He looks like a bit brutish. Mm-hmm. And then his dreams were so beautiful. And is that kind of the corruption of the expectation? Yeah, I got that too. I did say that his face has been corrupted by a book of fairy tales. <laughs> but it does change your opinion of people sometimes when you see someone and you're like, oh, they look really grumpy or not friendly. And you find out that they're like the loveliest, warmest person and then that like they're forever changed in your mind's eye I guess but then you meet some people and they're like really approachable looking and they turn out to be horrendous and you're like nope no that's why we get told not to judge a book by its cover right because those first impressions sometimes are not correct but this is not an excuse for men to tell women to smile no never ever do that but I'm always smiling or looking interestedly at something so it's because you're American (laughs) I'm too cheerful I'm like I will find the silver lining for anything So delightful. It's good if you're into that. I, hearing myself even sometimes, I'm like, this is not helpful. I have the opposite problem (laughs) though, because I'm like always worst case scenario. It's all doom and gloom. Everything's terrible. I'm like, just stop. No one wants to listen to this. Just stop. What are you doing? Stop talking about the heat death of the planet. No one wants to hear it. Stop talking about the patriarchy. We're like the, we're like the, we're exactly like, like April and Andy. (laughs) Somebody will die. Yes, oh, fun! Hufflepuff and Slytherin <laughs> represent. I'm putting that in the show notes. I can't believe that I have mean. to be Andy, but it's so accurate. Oh, where were we? Um, I thought that it was really interesting that like so many marriages weren't ruined Mm. by this and I know that the reason like later in the book we find out that most of the women are returned knowing that something has happened like there's a lot of unknown trauma so the thing with 
these Alilith tattoos is that they're around the tummy button. So when you have a baby, as I have done, your entire body goes through a drastic change where your stomach, no matter how fit you are, never looks the same again. And they talk about this in terms of the Alilith tattoo, where like once you go up into the Citadel, you come back and your tattoo is different, which means that they've had a baby, but they don't remember because someone takes their memories away. So they have all of this trauma that they don't really understand. And like as subjects of a really cruel regime, they've just kind of gotten on with their lives the best they can. Then the Godslayer came, killed all of the Mezarthim or most of them, and now they're, like, building their society back up again. Other people have gotten on with it, but Errol Fane and Azarine cannot seem to, and I don't think he really wants to. Something is still up there in that citadel for him. Like, I think that their marriage is the most corrupted by what's happened because they weren't given the gift of, like, the memories being erased for them. And he just can't let it go, right? I think part of that is the shame of having done what he done. Like, yes, he had his reasons for you know, murdering these children. But he doesn't feel good about it because he knows it's a terrible thing to do, right? It's a really terrible thing to do. Yeah, he can't live with himself, really. He can't... And it's almost like if he just moved on with his life, it would be like acknowledging that that didn't matter and it does matter to him. Like, if he just lived his life, it would be like saying, oh, well, he wants to suffer for it. Yeah. But what is the point of the penance? Do you know what I mean? Hmm. Does it actually serve yourself does it make you a better person does it make your society better for you to serve like i can't see the point of not trying to improve and be a better and more well-rounded person even if things are really hard you know what it reminds me of it reminds me of lord of the rings and at the end of it all when frodo gets home and he's just really tired and he isn't integrated into society and he can't really function because of all the Mm. trauma that he's gone through and he decides to leave middle earth and you know sam is really upset and he's like well what was it all for kind of if you you know we saved the shire and frodo's like but not for me i didn't save it for me and he leaves and i feel like that's kind of the same plane that errol fane is on is like yes i did this thing i was this hero but i can't benefit from it oh man ouch yeah it's real sad i cry every time (laughs) i want to talk a little bit about knowledge Mm -hmm. and i wanted to talk about laszlo's knowledge um he's really like the most observant person all of the time which i really love so i just want to like list all of the things that he like catches that i caught that he catches Mm -hmm. um so he observes azarine eyeing off errol fane he overheard some of their argument Um, He gets before Thion boy genius, figures out why they want to move the citadel because there's a big, massive shadow over their entire city. Mm -hmm. Like, hello. He really recognizes that he has viewed Errol Fane as somebody like, and this is really hard for me because when someone disappoints me, I'm like, oh, they're human. Like, it takes me a really long time. But he was like, oh, I've been viewing him as a hero and not a person. Like, every time something new comes up, he like factors it in really well. He folds it in really seamlessly so good to be able to just be flexible um and then i like that he recognizes that he actually wants to be the one to solve the problem Mm, yeah for we um because it's like exactly the way that puck was in the scorpio races how she kind of had to go oh i secretly do want to win yeah (laughs) and i remember us talking about that and being like aha she's admitting it and i really love that laszlo also has that oh yeah moment um, he's so smart and he just he figures out that he can start asking questions because yeah. the like vow of silence is broken is immediately like hey Ruza and Ruza is like don't look at me like that I am not your book to plunder I <laughs> love that line so much don't look at me like I'm a beautiful book you're about to open and plunder with your greedy mad eyes mm-hmm. so good it's so funny and I love their little like back and forth afterward where he's like oh good thing it's you that I challenged to a duel accidentally and was just like what am I not scary and Les was like yes yes dear you're terrifying so good (laughs) 
I also just loved about that interaction how proud he was that Azarine had called him an idiot. He's like, oh, I'm one of them. It was just so wholesome and lovely. (laughs) Yeah, like belonging is so important. And he's starting to feel like he really does belong, which is great. I think it's interesting in the theme of knowledge, which is, you know, our overarching theme, is how Laszlo is kind of like the source of knowledge because he's the one who's done the research. He actually knows more about we possibly than anyone else even Mm. the people who live there because they've lost so much of their history and then you've got Sarai who is like the only source of knowledge for the godspawn really because she's the one who goes down and like does the recon and she's intel she's an intel specialist going out there gathering intelligence that's what I wrote too her entire job is gathering intel Mm. but her mission gets a little corrupted when she falls into Laszlo's amazing dream and I love that as well and on the theme of corruption is how Laszlo's picture of Weep was kind of corrupted. Like he has this mm. vision of Weep and it like it looks exactly like he thought it would, but then there's something a little off about it. He talks about there being a um a forlorn look about it, a sense of lingering despair. And then Sarai notes that as well. She's like, she's in this amazing dream and she's like, it's Weep, but it's not Weep. Like everything is perfect and amazing. And I just kind of love that. I also want to be in this dream. Yeah, the little chicken man running backwards and the tiny old women riding on cats and like the cakes in the windows. Oh my gosh, I want to bake a cake right now. And it's interesting though, because Laszlo on page 175 has this um, insight where he says, the imagination he thought, no matter how vivid, was still tethered in some measure to the known. And this was beyond anything he could have imagined. But look at his dream. That is not tethered in some measure of the known. Like his dreams are wild. They're not tethered in reality. So I don't think imagination does need to be rooted in reality. Oh, but I also think that everything he's ever read or investigated or thought about has just come like all of these little things sound like folklore, like old women riding on cats or chicken legged people or, you know. So it's the manifestation of all his knowledge in this yeah. dream. Yeah. yeah. Oh, how nice. I know. And it always it always manifests uncorrupted, right? That's mm-hmm. the thing about Laszlo is he finds the most beautiful thing in everything. We're going to read this book later. So there was a moment where Sarai's like, I wish I could take things out of dreams so I could take some of these cakes up to the Citadel. I'm like, you know who you need? I know a guy. I'll get him for you. <laughs> Someone call Ronan. He would ruin this place with his terrible disposition. Oh, man. I could not imagine. I mean, like part of the reason I love Gansey so much, just going off on a total tangent, is because he's basically a real world has anxiety Laszlo. Mm. Yeah. Oh, man. I think Gansey's my favorite. I really am a Hufflepuff. See, I love Ronan. <laughs> just Ronan's my boy. I'll go to war for him. I, I just feel like I would always be trying to win his approval, and that makes me not want to try. Um, oh, there's something else. I, I, can we talk? Uh, look, I, I just have, like, I know that because I have ADHD, I think everybody else has ADHD. But uh, I am calling it. I think Laszlo Strange is in the Neurodivergent Squad. Mm-hmm. His obsession with the Unseen City is, like, 100% a hyper-focused fixation type of thing. Like, that is his special interest. Um, The thing where he's, like, reading and he walks into walls all the time. Yeah, I have done that. I have lived <laughs> that life. The fact that he can, like, parse people's emotions when he's not invested. Like, he can immediately click that things are happening between people when it's not his argument, but he really struggles when it is something that he's involved in. Like, if you contrast the way that he can immediately kind of sense what's going on between Errol and Azrain back, and then, like, the time with Thion Nero where he didn't understand the best way to approach Thion after Thion's bad night because he was invested in helping. Like the difference is that he doesn't get it because he's part of it. But when he's not part of it, he can see it instantly. Mm. Um, Yeah, I live in that house, man. I definitely live in that house. So welcome to the Neurodivergent Squad, Laszlo. We'd love love to have you. You've just mentioned Thion, which reminded me. I really, really felt for Thion in this chapter. Mm. He's barely in it. You know, there's a little bit where he's being 
obtuse and Laz was like, uh, duh, it's the shadow that we're trying to fight, like fix. But it's when Sarai goes into his dreams and she describes it as being, you know, suffocating, basically. Yeah, a cramped and airless coffin, I think she called it. Yeah, and how he's basically just in a lab trying to, I guess, make more gold or whatever it is he does. And I was just like, wow, Thion, your life is so small. You know, he's just got this intense pressure on him the entire time. And I just, it made me feel really, I don't know, I just felt really sorry for him. It's kind of like, you know, he, he was chasing something bigger than himself when he left. I, I did I did want to point out that the book that he was reading mm. is Miracles, Miracles for, for Bricks. Bricks. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I so spotted like, that too. I was like, he actually still reads it. He's looking for answers in this book of Laszlo's from all these years ago. It's almost like despite himself, like he is so, he's a man of science and fact and stuff, but he can't quite... Because this has worked before, right? He's found yeah. his answer in this book before, so we can't quite let it go. I have a lot of feelings about Thion. Namely that he needs to make a few friends and learn how to, like, be flexible, but... Yeah. Laszlo was given just enough love and affection and ability to kind of do his own thing that he could develop a moral compass, but... I think that Fion had the opposite, where he was just expected to become a certain thing by all of these people around him, and so did. I don't know why, but it reminds me of a story of this when I was in high school in South Africa. I was only in high school for a year, but there was this amazing track athlete, and she came from a family of amazing athletes, and she was expected to just, you know, win and be amazing. But it turned out that she didn't actually want to do that anymore, mm. and she ended up breaking her own leg on purpose <gasps> Oh my gosh. so that she didn't have to race. Yikes. This idea that this pressure of expectation just gets so much that you can't see a way out, and like you take this extreme action in order to, to escape, right? Like crossing El Muthaleth to get away from your father and your yeah, your auntie the queen. the queen who just wants gold, 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 gold. I mean, she traded him for a tiara. I know. What does that say, right? It's madness. I think his self-worth is even lower than Laszlo's because his is entirely based on what he has been able to do. So he can't, he can't even see himself as being able to help or contribute. He has to be the one who does all the work. And that's why he reacts so strongly when Laszlo tries to help him that time, right? Because Laszlo, he's like, don't you dare pity me. He can't have lower self-worth than yeah. the help. How can he continue living? How can he wake up every morning and do what he needs to do if he realizes how sad his life is? I know you haven't seen Ted Lasso yet, but there is a fantastic scene where Keely says, who would you rather be, a lion or a panda? And it's because <laughs> she has this upcoming photo shoot and she gets to choose which animal she is, right? So they're, they're kind of talking it over in the, in the parking lot and... Ted Lasso asks the hotshot player, Jamie Tart, like, oh, what would you rather be, a lion or a pen? And he said, coach, I'm me. Why would I want to be anything else? And he just goes, that's surprisingly psychologically healthy of you. <laughs> and I just think, like, he's an obnoxious character, but maybe actually we don't need to have to be a lion or a panda. We can we can just be the, the Jamie Tart of our own lives. Mm, and maybe Laszlo that. needs a little bit of that, too. Um, and also, I am going to make you watch all of it when you come visit me, because... Yeah, good. Because the only person I know with Apple TV, I said I wanted to watch Ted Lasso with, and she's like, oh, it's terrible. We watched a couple of episodes and we hated it. And I'm like, oh, well, now we can no longer be friends. So... No, you have to still be friends with them, because didn't you have Christmas with them? <laughs> it would be awkward if you didn't. Yeah, no, of course. I'm not going <laughs> to cut people off. I just think it's fascinating, because we wrong, have though. so much... Yeah, like, I just find it fascinating how people have these very averse reactions to shows sometimes. And anyway, that's a different conversation. I, 
I just felt like there was so much going on in this chapter. There was also the physical corruption of wheat by the Citadel, right? So it's like physically blocking out all the light. These plums are falling off it and it's making this entire suburb smell of fermentation and it's giving people trauma. And yeah, like they can't grow anything. There's no moonlight, no starlight, no natural light. So that is like a really intense physical corruption that has lasted. I can't imagine what it would be like to live in the shadow of something for 15 years. And know that, like, the immediate trauma is done, but you still can't get over the... Like, it's such a metaphor for what they've been through and what they're still Mm. dealing with, right? And this is like, they're finally calling the therapist and saying, like, we got to get rid of the shadow. And then, you know, Laszlo makes that comment that no one looks at it. But of course, they don't look at it because Sarai has put this deep dread in them to look up at it. Mm. That's backfiring, isn't it? Because they want to get rid of it even more now. (laughs) Yeah, and they probably think, hey, if we get rid of it, maybe we won't have nightmares anymore, which yes and no. There's definitely some corruption in the way that Errol Fane sees himself versus the way that other people see him, which I thought was really interesting. Laszlo sees him as a, a kind, gentle, guarded, complicated person. Sarai desperately wants him to love her, but she also desperately wants to be lovable enough to be loved by him, her father. He doesn't think he's worthy enough to be Azarine's husband, but Azarine puts her ring on and goes to sleep every night mm. wearing it. I also thought it was so intense that she wouldn't let her family look after her house. Like she talks about how the house is really musty when she returns from this trip because she didn't want her sisters or her mother to come in and look after it because they'll be like, yo, it's time to move on. And she doesn't want to have that conversation. The writing, the way it made it seem like it was their one place that they'd had together. Yes, where they were married for like five Five days, days. right? Good Lord. I I wanted to ask you a question. Hmm? So Minya corrupts their day-to-day peacefulness and she has been doing for a while like she's a deliberately unsettling and unobliging person um do you think this is a way that like do you think she really is anticipating a war or do you think she's just trying to keep them and her trauma with her i think she's always expecting a war i think minya's level of trauma and vengefulness to me suggests that she if not expecting them to come she was gonna go down and start a war like she's building her little ghost army that we don't know about in the text yet but you know i feel like she was always bent on vengeance and therefore she was always anticipating a conflict whether the conflict would come to them or how it would work doesn't matter she just always expects it to come yeah i there was a bit where sarai said that um for Minya, it would always be the carnage, you know, being stuck in that loop of only feeling it and only allowing that to dictate everything. I mean, like, A, it's super unhealthy, but B, also, like, the way that these kids have been raised, it's so hard. I can't imagine still being able to find that, like, Ruby's passion and her, she just doesn't, she doesn't want to hurt anybody. She passionately wants to be out in the world living in it, but she doesn't want to hurt anybody. Mm. And Sparrow just wants to grow things and meet people and Feral just wants to learn things and and like all of them are such interesting and amazing humans, well, people. And Minya is just so focused on survival. Yeah. And maybe that's also coming down to like living in the seat of your trauma, right? It's the same mm. with having this citadel above the city that every day when the citizens of Wheat see it, they're reminded of this traumatic thing that happened to them. And it's yeah. the same way with Minya. She lives with it physically. She lives in it, right? There's no escape for her. Everything is a trigger. Yeah. How do you move on when that is your environment? She has all of the ghosts, all of the ghosts in her head from all of weep all of the time. I like I can't imagine what kind of mayhem that would be to have to exert your control over these people. But also like she knows what they want. Like she has to be able to do that in order to subvert them or make them talk or make them act in a way like she's the ultimate puppet master. She's John Malkoviching all of these ghosts. <laughs> and, and I just yeah, I like I have a lot of empathy for her because it can be so hard when you are determined to make something 
that was really wrong, right? But she just doesn't have the tools to do it. No, and I think there's an element of self-loathing with her as well because she so desperately wants her father's gifts, right? The mm. fact that she doesn't have it is, is a real source of pain for her, which is why she takes it out on the other kids and what she perceives to be their useless gifts. Oh, yeah, like bagging out the people who provide you with food and water is the right way to go. And like eat. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you wouldn't be alive if the other three children weren't there. Like, Sarai's gift of all of them is kind of the least useful. Mm. Practically useful. You know what I mean? Like, the other, like, they could survive without Sarai. Maybe the moths could bring up some food. Has she tried that? Because they can clearly lift little things, so. Ooh, seeds. Why aren't they getting seeds? Oh, because there's nothing growing in Weep, though. No, but they could get bread or something. Moths get on it. I don't know. I think if I were Sarai, I would have been like, okay, how can I work this to my advantage? But when you're a child being directed, you don't have that kind of thought, you know? She's just now kind of grasping, like, okay, maybe if I make it something they avoid, then Mm. we can avoid being detected up here. Yeah, and I mean, we've spoken about it in previous episodes. You could have seeded some positive thoughts, some thoughts of reconciliation or of Mm. a different world or like, yeah. There was a lot of foreshadowing in this section as well. There's a lot of um, Sarai when they're on the, the terrace and Ruby's like throwing prams over and then she's trying to go over and Sarai's talking about how easy it is to fall over the ba- balcony mm. and now she pulls Ruby back and how she's really scared of heights and all these things. So there's a lot of that. Yeah. And then um, there's also a lot of talk about a baby that had shown Skaith's gift before and that was taken away and like all these things. And I'm like, hmm. Who is that baby? Who could that possibly be? I have to show you what I wrote in that bit. Is my marginalia. Oh, I also <laughs> wrote that. <laughs> Less hearts, though. I'm just a very effusive heart drawer. I love her description of Laszlo in the dream. I was like, he had an air of one bewitched. There was a light in his eyes of absolute wonder. Which light, she thought, and suffered a pang of deep envy for whoever or whatever it was behind her that had enthralled him so completely. But it's you. I know, so he cute. sees so her. Cute. And like, that is the dream. That is literally the dream, right? To meet someone and to have them look at you like that and to see you when you are so unseen by so many. That is like teenager yearning 101. And I am here for it. I also made the note, why is Thion's life so claustrophobic? Question mark, question mark. Yeah, I mean, doesn't he have an entire former uh, cathedral as his lab? Oh, I don't know. He makes me sad. I know. He needs he needs to, like, be more sure of himself. He needs to date somebody who will, like, challenge him on all this nonsense. Maybe he can date Ruby. That would be good. Except I'm pretty sure that Thion bats for the other team. I just have a feeling. There is so much flirting. Like, I think Laszlo is just oblivious to flirting most of the time but Dion's tension with Laszlo is definitely one that I think is Mm, that's an interesting reading yeah I think there's a bit of there's more than just rivalry hmm this is like how in the sixth book of Harry Potter Harry was obsessed with Draco the whole time we almost made it through this entire podcast without mentioning Harry Potter. And I have to, I have you, I want it on record that it has been extremely difficult for me, but I've been holding it in because I'm like, no, every time you bring it up, not today, Jen, not today. So thank you for taking over. Like, look, I've literally underlined a section and next to it, I've written Draco. <laughs> It's because that's like the like it's a very formative text for us. It's okay. Like some people see biblical allegory, we see Harry Potter allegory. That's just it's all right. I had a conversation with someone at work and they like over our in, like in-house messenger system and I said something about Harry Potter and related it to something at work. She's like, "Wow, you can really make anything about Harry Potter." And I'm like, "Oh god." Yep, you can cuz you're amazing and a genius. <laughs> Send help. No. 
You've also got more than just Harry Potter, though. You've got Lord of the Rings. There is so much going on in that entire story. So mm-hmm, much. Yeah. I feel like I need to reread it and do like a close reading, but it would take so long. Yeah, I was thinking about getting the audiobooks. I was like, maybe I could do that. I should probably just read it, though. It's on my list. Hmm. Yeah. I, I think we covered super a lot. There's still um, more. There's so much to do. But yes, I think we've covered the main points. Yeah. Did you want to do in-depth? marginalia yes so for my in-depth marginalia you'll like this i chose a section on page 189 and it is when um errol is turning back and letting everyone go because he's not going into weep with them and detects reads feeling like the world's greatest coward he turned away from his city and his guests and his wife whom he could not love because he could not love and he rode the short track back to fort mismatch so he's obviously as we've discussed in this episode filled with self-loathing mm. and i think this is a corruption of his life right this is the corruption of his future that he he saw for himself what he thought he was going to be when he was 17 before he was stolen away and then he became this hero but even that's corrupted because he can't be the hero that people think he is or need him to be because he's just filled with all this this self-loathing and the things he had to do to be a hero were like so repugnant and abhorrent absolutely and it reminds me of all those stories where the hero turns away because they're thinking they're not good enough or they're doing more harm than good and there's no redemption. Like, if we think of Luke in, like, The Last Jedi, right, he's Mm. exiled himself. But for some reason, I really thought of The Lion King and I thought about Simba refusing to come back and take his rightful throne because he's got all this guilt that he carries that's not even his to carry. He's flipping Simba. Oh, my gosh. Which I suppose means he's Hamlet. Hamlet. But, you know, (laughs) let's stick with The Lion King. And I just, I don't know why this idea of him just turning away, I just really felt that. And, you know, and how it reminds me of my own life is there's moments where I have stood on the precipice of something and then I've gone, no, I'm not worthy of this. Or no, this is not for me. This is not my story. Or I don't belong here. And you walk away from something when you should really just deal with the actual issue, which is the underlying trauma underneath that is motivating that. And I think that's what it calls me to do going forward, that when I have that kind of strong reaction being like, no, I I don't want to do there or no this isn't for me or like no I cannot love it's to pause and go no actually what is motivating this what is the root cause of this feeling because it's not that you're unlovable it's not that you're not worthy there is something else going on here and if you don't unpack that you're never going to be able to move forward so that is what I want to take forward is to take that time pause reflect on why you're feeling what you're feeling and actually deal with that underlying cause rather than the knee-jerk reaction that's really good that's beautiful I keep getting Um, stuck on could not he could not love because he could not love. Yeah, and it's in like italics as well. So it's like he could not love. But it's really ambiguous, right? Could not suggest prevented, maybe, but like prevented by what? Prevented by whom? It's it's like not capable of or I don't know. There, there's a lot of nuance there. Mm. Um, like I could probably write a thesis on that. Like what does it actually mean? Does it mean that he's just incapable? Does it mean that he has more work to do? It's like he won't allow himself to. That's how I read it. You know, there's so many different ways that this could manifest. I feel like the implication is that he's not capable. You know, oh, his Mm. heart is so hard. He's not capable of loving. But it's because he's not allowing himself to love. He's so shamed. Yeah. Yeah. I just hurt the things I love. So I'm not going to love, you know, that classic trope. Oh, man. (laughs) So, yeah, that was my little bit. What about you? Mine's a little bit similar. Um, It's when Sarai is like she's coming to the window to see Errol Fane or who she thinks is Errol Fane. And she's kind of talking about the last 15 years and how she's interacted with the people of Weep and the city itself being an important place. So Mm -hmm. the text I chose was it's on page 210. 
Um, there had been talk of moving the city out from under the shadow, starting anew someplace else. A site had even been chosen downriver, but there was far too deep a history here to simply give up. This land had been won for them by angels. Shadowed or not, it was sacred. Mm. And that bit, shattered or not, it was sacred. That was the bit I was focusing on. And I think it really ties into the, the theme of like the things that we hold dear, even if they're corrupted, they're still important. Even if they're not the way we expected them to be, they're still sacred, right? Mm-hmm. So they want to improve their city and make it better and, and make it good enough going forward that it can still be what it has always meant to them. Like, because it's not just the place itself, but it's the whole history around it. It's the the demon glass cusp. It's the fact that mm. they're situated over this beautiful river. It sounds like Babylon or Atlantis or something. Like, I want to go yeah. there. So I guess what I was thinking of was they have so much knowledge and they have so much connection that even though it's been corrupted by the presence of the Mazarthum, they don't want to leave. Mm. And, and I think it actually really responds well to your text that, you know, Errol Fane is shadowed but that doesn't mean he's not still sacred and in his humanity that's important i think for myself it's to remember that like nothing we love is perfect but that doesn't mean it's any less worthy of loving Mm, that's beautiful and i think it's really important to remember expecting perfection from people and things is always going to lead to heartbreak right so yeah yeah just have to have built-in grace and work to make what we can better yeah it doesn't mean accepting things you know you can always work to make things better but yeah i think grace is really important there i think that's definitely yeah i think it's important for us to allow room for redemption yes yeah actually something my husband and i've been talking about a lot over the past few weeks is how cancel culture has just made it impossible for people to have ever been a dumb person at one point in their life without serious consequences that are like we don't allow people to learn from and correct and that then creates people who don't want to learn and correct and that then mm. go hard the other way. And that's like the opposite of what we as a society need and want. So, yeah. 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 Because there should be consequences for actions, but there should be redemption as well. Like, that's the whole point of restorative justice, right? Yeah. And if it's just like, well, you did a bad thing and therefore now get out, never be seen again and go die in a ditch. That's not helpful either. Well, and exactly. I mean, look, because I'm in the process of raising two kids, I see this all the time. Like, they do things that they know they're not supposed to do, but they're also kids and they're mostly impulse led. So, but Mm. if I hold that against them when they're older, that's not going to actually help them to be better. You have to say, okay, you know what? is expected of you and we're going to do better next time and then you actually hold them to account for that next time and if they mess up again you say remember when we did this last time it didn't work out so great and we move on the idea that we all have to be impeccably perfect is unrealistic and also like as I'm growing and learning there are lots of things I've done even a year ago that I'm kind of horrified that I said or thought or did or whatever the fact that I know that is the good thing the fact that I'm moving on and I'm like getting through the shame of that and becoming a better and more understanding person that's the point I do struggle a lot as well when people dig out 10-year-old tweets for someone today being like, look what you said 12 years ago on Twitter. I'm like, okay, that's not a reflection of someone's character now. Like a lot can happen in 12 years. Oh my gosh, yeah. We all have said terrible things and done terrible things. And I just don't understand what that proves. Like, what does that prove digging up this tweet that is 10 years old? Like, what are you trying to prove here? I guess it proves that people are really good at digging out 12-year-old tweets to make other people feel bad. What a skill. I thought actually when I was thinking of a story about corruption, that was one I was going to tell about how, you know, a lot of the things that I grew up loving turned out to be horrifically problematic and corrupted as a result of it, right? Because your memory is corrupted of it, this thing that you thought was wholesome turns out not so much um 
Yeah, that was a beautiful section. Thank you for drawing our attention to it. I think, yeah, that shadowed or not it was sacred is really important to remember. Yeah, it just really stuck out to me this week, especially in light of how much I was, like, feeling the feels for Aralfane and Azarine. She's so amazing. She is. Yeah, well, I guess that dovetails nicely. So my character spotlight this week is Azarine. Ah, great. <laughs> because I really love unrequited love. I love people who love each other and can't be together. Like, this is just Gen D catnip, basically. Um, <laughs> I think there's something really beautiful about how she's not trying to take more than she can. So she will always offer and she will be upset that she doesn't get to be a part of Errol Fane's, like life. But she gives herself that moment every day where she puts her ring on and is married in the evening and she doesn't like try and move on from that because she doesn't want to and that like that's okay it is okay Mm. to still be in love with someone and to still have hope knowing that things are really terrible because it wouldn't actually be any better with anyone else no because she'd just be wanting the whole time yeah I think it's actually okay like sometimes it's okay to recognize that you have met that one person and like even though you're not with that one person they were still your one person she leads everyone Mm. she's an amazing second command she thinks Laszlo and Ruza are idiots, and she tells them, and it makes <laughs> Laszlo's day. She's the best. Who did you have? So I wanted to spotlight Sparrow this week, particularly because, you know, the, they're all freaking out about their future and their safety, and Minya's got them all wound up, and Sparrow makes the point that they can't fight, and Minya says, you can't. And there's this note in the text that says, though Sparrow's gift... Um, as though Sparrow's gift, which has kept them fed in for years, had no worth because it had no dimension for violence. You know, Sparrow has this amazing gift. She grows their food. She makes the, their house beautiful. She grows these flowers and everything is beautiful because of her. She is the light in their life. And yeah. Minya just cruelly dismisses her because all Minya cares about is violence. And it's so short-sighted. And I think about how Sparrow has already been hurt by Ruby being very OTT and Sparrow's really soft and like mm. and I just yeah I really felt for her in this moment how she must feel so kind of isolated and alone and she just wants to have everyone to be happy and beautiful and yeah I just wanted to give her a little bit of love and say you know you're valuable and you have worth and she didn't deserve that that wasn't very kind of Minya well next week we're going to be reading chapters 28 through 34 through the theme of dreams Ooh. Oh perfect could not be more perfect i know we need a bit of a palate cleanser after corruption hey yeah it's an intense one it really is um thank you so much for sharing your thoughts they were really interesting as always Uh, thank you for plotting with me i love it i'm so glad we get to do this can't wait for next week all right speak to you then see ya Thanks for joining us today. Marginalia Pod is written, edited, and produced by us, Gen D and Gen V, with additional editing and production support by Simon B. If you enjoyed it, we'd love it if you'd subscribe, rate, and review it on iTunes. Your support means the world to us. We'd also love to hear from you. You can email us at hello at marginaliapod.com. Our music is by Scott Buckley. Many of the things we've mentioned are in the show notes, or you can find out more about us and the podcast at www.marginaliapod.com.